How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're discussing personal investing in a volatile and crowded world. Burgeoning middle classes in China, India, and other emerging countries are increasing global demand for food, energy, water, and consumer goods. In March, China's grain imports hit a record high. In fact, China's growing appetite is pushing up food and energy costs in rolling world commodity and equity markets. Add in massive public deficits in the United States, political and fiscal turmoil in Europe, the Earth's destabilized climate, and another 2 billion people on the way, and the investing horizon looks kind of hairy, especially for young people. Over the next hour, we'll discuss what to do with your money and how individuals and communities can be more resilient in face of what's coming our way. We're joined by our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco and two professional investors. Chris Martinson is a futurist and author of The Crash Course, and Tom Van Dyke is a senior vice president at RBC Wealth Management. Please welcome them to Climate One. <laughs> Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you both for coming. Uh, let's start a little bit with uh, your personal stories. I'd like to know how you got into the, the, the investing and the business that you're in uh, right now. And Chris, let's start with you. You had a corporate job, and then you had quite a, a fundamental change of career and lifestyle. Tell us about that. I did, and, and uh, it started with a healthy dose, dose of self-interest. Uh, it was 2000, 2001. I was watching my portfolio get eviscerated. I started asking questions of my broker that, that were less than satisfyingly answered, and I started digging into the economy. And within about a month, I'd scared myself silly, looking at what I now realize were really quaint deficits and, and uh, debt levels and all of that. That was my entrance. I fell down this rabbit hole of data around the first E of the economy. And then when I understood what was going on with energy and the environment, I decided that the, the lifestyle I had, uh, this corporate existence, I had a five-bathroom house on the coast of Connecticut, I realized that it was a very unsustainable life, and I wanted to change that. So fast forward, I now live in a, a much smaller rural community, a very nice community. Uh, I raise chickens. I have a garden. I, I have a lot of sustainability. I have resilience in my life around energy, food, uh, my finances. And, and you uh, homeschool your kids? Homeschool the kids. And, and so here's, I guess I can summarize it in, in one sentence. We cut our standard of living in half. I think we doubled our quality of life. Interesting. Uh, Tom Van Dyke, tell me, you've been involved in social responsible investing for a long time. How did you get into it? Right. I've been doing this since 1983. Uh, I got into the area by <clears throat> dealing with nuclear power. I used to raise money to close down nuclear power plants back after the Three Mile Island accident because at that point it seemed clear to me it was clearly the most expensive way to boil water on the planet. And there was much more economic ways to do it, uh, just if we were just a little bit more clever about it. So I entered, <clears throat> moved from the East Coast to the West Coast because they reward failure here, and they're interested in new ideas and actually talking about the solutions rather than debating the problems, because uh, you don't need to debate whether Iran catch was a problem or whether, you know, spending money on war, building up deficits to $3 trillion and fleshing the rat hole of capital down a war where you get nothing in return. So moved out here to discuss the solutions and um, started doing social responsible investing. And I have a garden, solar panels on the house, so 100% off PG&E, I 
pump them money every year, though they don't pay me enough for my solar that I produce, so I'm paying three cents a kilowatt. So we need to get net metering up so that we can actually get paid for the solar power that we're producing at peak hours when they're making 25 cents a kilowatt hour. So there's a billion from us. Uh, so living sustainably is the way to go, and I think you know the Bay Area kind of represents that because we have a tendency of exporting the ideas east. So California being the large economy that it is, if we can get the ideas passed in California embraced, then we can push the, the change east. And so, and we'll get into here. some of those things there. Um, Chris, you've talked about how the narrative is, is broken for young people these days. We just heard sort of your personal stories a little bit. How about young people today who are looking at a future with personal and national debt? Talk about the narrative there that, that's emerging for them, how it's broken. I think we're asking, by we I mean my generation and above, we're asking young people to step into a story that really fundamentally doesn't make sense. And it goes something like this. Uh, work hard, go to college, come out with debt, maybe go to graduate school. And when you come out of that, you're going to come into a very uncertain workforce where we don't really honor long-term commitments anymore. You're kind of on your own. Oh, by the way, there's a huge debt load that you're going to have to pay back, and uh, here's your crumbling infrastructure to go along with that. Sorry, we didn't invest it well. Um, it's not a really compelling narrative. Uh, I was asked recently by a, a high school teacher, said, my kids, a lot of them are apathetic. Why is that? And I, I waggishly said, because they're smart. Um, they're, they're looking at a future and they're saying, I don't see a place for myself. I don't see myself in that narrative that feels good. And the thing that bothers me about that is that we have so much that they could step into that would feel good if we just had the story right. So where our story is broken is where we're saying, listen, what we're going to do is expend any resource, any amount of money to get our economy growing again. And the way we do that is we have to funnel money into our capital markets, into our banking system, because that's how we've traditionally done it. Instead, I think we should be saying, wow, Here's a future we can clearly see. We have resource constraints, meaning we have to use what we have more wisely, a little bit shepherd it more carefully. We have an energy story that just begs to be uh, uh, treated with, with the utmost care, respect, and intelligence that we can bring to it. We have technologies right now that we can employ that we're not employing. And, and I think that really tells me that we just have a story that isn't the right story. And how to change the story. Let's get both of you. you know, okay, that's a story. How does the story change? One person at a time. Right. Okay. You've changed, Tom? I, well, I think they know that, they, that people under the age of 35 have a lot of power. I mean, there'll be more people under the age of 35 voting than over the age of 65 in this next election. So they know they need to be empowered to know that they can actually take control of their destiny by voting who they want in power to help set those standards, both representatives, senators, and president. They also vote with their dollars every day by what they buy. So when you go buy a product, you're actually telling that company, I support the way you make that product. I look at your, you know, extended producer responsibilities and say, I support that. I support using recycled products. So they vote with their dollars, and then they vote with how they invest. You know, what kind of companies they support, what kind of companies they invest in. That's that's the other way of voting. But we saw with Occupy, there's a lot of people who don't have money to invest. They don't have no. jobs. They think the system is broken. They want to, rather than work on the inside, they want to bang on the outside. And, and that's fine because it's a frustration with what I think Chris pointed out, that they're taking the money, the taxpayer money, and they're using it to bail out banks who decide to leverage rather than lend. Okay? And I think that the banking model needs to go back to lending. And, and so people are saying, look, you take all these taxpayer money. What do we get for it? You know, why don't we get a mortgage write-down so that we can then stay in our homes longer? Why don't you give money to regional banks so that they can actually lend more as opposed to the, the large multinationals? Why, why is it that in the SNL crisis of the 1990s, we saw Charles Keating and a bunch of people go to jail? We've seen nobody go to jail. In fact, what we've seen is potentially, you know, 
CEOs of some banks coming back for large pay raises, which the shareholders are now saying, hey, wait a minute. We don't think you're entitled to do that because you haven't really earned that over the last year, two or three. There was a story in the New York Times recently about some of the, the former head of, uh, was it uh, Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, who's still on the board of Goldman Sachs, right? These people who were very much involved in this are still in, uh, in, on boards kind of running the show. But the uh, key is the people can take that back. The Occupy people, I think, represent that, and they can now vote and take, in, and take somewhat control over where, what's going to be happening for their futures. And that they need to be empowered to take action. I think apathy is is where they can go, but that's not going to do them any good. So, Chris, do you think change will come from within the system, from outside the system, both? I think it comes from the bottom up, and that's why I, I've spent all of my time really working at the grassroots level as much as I can. Uh, it's my point of view that politicians tend to follow more than they lead, and as soon as there's a groundswell, uh, enough enough political power to do something, I think we'll do the right things. I'm concerned that our current trajectory says that if we leave it up to our political leaders alone, what we're going to do is, is we'll have to get into crisis first. And then when the crisis is obvious, then we'll start doing things. But, you know, Greece is my model for this. Four years ago, Greece had all kinds of opportunities and options and things it could have done. Uh, today it has far fewer options, uh, a, much, a much poorer set of solutions that it can apply because it's, it's broke at this point in time. Waiting until the crisis is upon you is a tried-and-true method, but when it comes to waiting for an energy crisis to hit you, I think that's when it's, it's just too late. So what I like doing is working as grassroots. And here's the great thing. There's so many positive stories happening at the community level, individual level, where we see whole entire communities coming together to take their own destiny in their hands as much as they can. And that, in many respects, just reflects the sort of a national vacuum that we have. So do you think what's happening in Europe now will come to our shores? Absolutely. It's mathematical certainty at this point. And how will that play out? I mean, what are we, we're going to become Greece. Well, it's going to play out in the bond markets first, right? This is, this is why I spend so much time looking at the economy, because we get some of our earliest first reads there. Um, you know, I, I get into peak oil debates a lot, and, and uh, some people say, well, you know, look at all these reasons why it's not here. And I said, well, let's look at the price of oil for the past year. There's a sign there. It's very powerful. Just any time you fill up your gas tank at the petrol pump, notice what's happening on the, on the dollar signs going by as you're doing that. This tells us something about where we are in this story. And uh, we have a situation in the United States right now where we are clearly on an economically and fiscally unsustainable course, fiscally at the federal level. But even at the state level, we're seeing this as well. Those are really obvious, clear signs. The extent to which we're thinking, you know, We've always sort of skated by. This has never really been a problem in the past. You know, it's been a problem, but we've gotten past it. That might be true. I think we have to open the dialogue to at least ask the question, well, what if that's not true this time? What if something is fundamentally different? And how will we want to be positioned if this does come to our shores? We should be having those conversations right now. And it's not happening because of political sort of morass in Washington, all sorts of other reasons. Uh, well, one of the things that could happen is actually, you know, Germany is... And the ECB is funding Greece right now. And I brought this up at a at The a European Central Bank. The European Central Bank. And they're, they're basically bailing out Greece. What they could do, potentially, is put on their loan requirements, say, well, why don't you do, in California, we have something here called the Million Solar Home Initiative. Why don't you put solar panels, start doing more building efficiency, because there's going to be this oil ripple that you're talking about that's going to hit the Greece economy so that once they... Stop contracting and actually maybe start growing that they will be hit with. So why don't you start doing more solar, more renewable energy, more building efficiency to start prepare for that? Where are they going to buy that from? You know, who installs more solar than anybody else on the planet? 
China. It's actually great. It's Germany has more installed soil than China does at this point. Right. China produces more soil than anybody else on the planet. But China Greece, makes the panels, but they go. But Greece Germany. actually, but Germany actually installs it, so, and Germany produces a lot of because they had the leading feed and tariff situation. So they could be selling into the Greece market as they make their economy more energy efficient for this next ripple that's coming up and put that as a part of the loan. We just need to take a crisis. You don't want to waste a good crisis. So we should take it and try to be innovative about it and come up with solutions that can actually get growth, reasonable growth or sustainable growth in the economies rather than just straight austerity where everyone remains unemployed and they're cut, 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 cut. You know, you have to come up with some more creative solutions from that perspective. Well, and this is an excellent point because there's so much we can do. Like, right. like solar thermal panels, 1970s technology, it's a box, there's tubes, water, and the sun hits it and it heats the water. This is a great thing. We can do it. It's, it makes economic sense. It makes national security sense. It makes climate sense. It makes all kinds of sense. And we're not doing it. And the reason is why? China's okay. doing a lot of solar thermal. There's that, yeah, that's where Chris is right. They're doing more solar thermal. I'm at solar PV for, yeah. for Germany. But but why? But if things are economic, mm-hmm. why aren't we doing it? Are we stupid? Well, I mean, Cal- <laughs> well, California's done some things. I mean, to California's credit, right? I mean, there's some things that we have done. We decoupled the utilities from you have to build a power plant to make a profit. Right? We said, okay, back in 78, we said, no, you know, we can actually encourage California consumers to go out and buy more efficient appliances, more efficient refrigerators, you know, washer dryers. And instead of spending 800 million bucks on a new power plant, you can spend that $8 million in rebates that go back to California citizens to incentivize them to use less electricity. So when they use less electricity, okay, your bill, then we at the PUC regulate, will allow your, your cost of kilowatt hour to go up so we will still be paying 50 bucks 100 bucks for our electrical bill but we'll be using less electricity and that way the utilities can still make money and that's called megawatts as opposed to megawatts and you can do it through efficiency how many utilities in the country are actually decoupled not very many and not, that's one california trend that hasn't gone national as, as many as some others so tom it sounds like you really see clean energy as a solution as a growth engine um, but, Chris, you're not so sure about renewables. You think they're not always economic, they don't scale, that they may not be quite the engine that Tom is saying. Is that fair? Yeah, so I don't think we have an energy crisis right now. There, there's a lot of ways to make electricity. A lot of the alternative energies, when we talk about them, are really ways to make electrons, electricity. Uh, what we're facing is a liquid fuels crisis. When we look at uh, the world oil data right now, conventional crude plus condensate, which is the stuff comes out of pipes and we know it, we can track it really easily, that's been in a narrow 5% band of production for the past six years now, even though the price response should be, the market pressure should be saying, we should be producing lots more of this today than we used to be producing, and the price should be a lot lower, and that hasn't happened. So it's going to take a long time before any combination of alternative energy can make a significant dent on how we tend to use our liquid fuels. So liquid fuels, this is how everybody in this room and all of us and myself, everybody got here. This is how our food gets to our... Wait, wait, our I got an electric car. I didn't get here that way. But. Uh, well, that's a great point, though, Greg. So how much uh, is transportation, Chris, of the, of the oil usage? How much is transportation? What if we shift the transportation from a petrochemical molecule to an electron? So right now, 95% of everything that goes from point A to point B does so because of liquid fuels from petroleum. So if we did shift transportation to a non-hydrocarbon, let's say... 
electricity, yeah. then that would have a huge It, it would have a huge impact. And, and, but this is a time problem, and it's a scale problem, and it's also mm-hmm. a cost problem. Mm-hmm. So here's the time issue on this. If right now, magically, we said, that's it, we're only producing electric cars. GM, somehow, magically, they have all the lithium they need, and, and they've, we've retooled all the plants. And tonight, starting tomorrow, the only cars that can be purchased in any showroom in America, in fact, globally, is an electric car. How long before half the fleet has been swapped out by normal mechanisms. We're not saying you have to trash your current car and, and waste the capital, but when it wears out, you buy an electric vehicle, and the answer is it's going to take 10 years mm-hmm. to swap out half the fleet. So that's the time problem on this. The scale problem is we don't know if there's enough lithium in the world that can be mined fast enough to create that many batteries mm-hmm. right now using existing battery technology. Mm-hmm. And then the cost is going to be extraordinary. So we can do all those things, but my point is we really should be doing that in a more urgent, more focused way starting a few years ago, but right now would be a good would be a good time as well. So now would be a good time. So now, now given, good. given where we are, <laughs> and yes, it would have been great to do it back in the '80s, right? Mm-hmm. When we first had the energy crisis, that would have been a great time, absolutely. And but lurking here that. is is the peak oil question. That's hotly contested. Some people just I mentioned it to someone recently. He just rolled his eyes and scoffed at me like, "Well, you're you're a fuck. You're one of those uh-huh. fools who believes in that theory." Yeah. Uh, so. Every time someone says peak oil, there's a huge discovery off the coast of Brazil or there's something else. Or unconven- what's called unconventional tar sands, et cetera, comes into the market. And there's other forms of liquid petroleum that comes into the market. So every time someone says peak oil, there's more supply found or, or created somehow. Yeah, and this is a, a, there's, there's a lot of complexity in this story, but really, peak oil is about flow rates. This is the most important part. So the Bakken fields, it's pretty big in North Dakota, so the Bakken is this shale plate. It's about 10,000 feet down, and you have to drill all the way through that, and then you drill a horizontal well about two more miles, and you frack it. And you get things, uh, oil coming out of that. For each one of those drill pads that I just mentioned, 10,000 plus two miles, 10,000 feet and two miles, um, those average out at about 150 barrels per day per well, Okay. We consume about 18 million barrels per day right now of liquid fuel. And in order for the Bakken play to really give us the flow rates we need, we're going to have to drill hundreds of thousands of wells. That's fine. We can do that. But eventually we're going to discover even that play will play out. Right now the world is losing about 4 to 5 million barrels per day of production from existing fields. That's the decline rate. So the world has to create that amount of, of new production off of the Bakken, off of the Tupi salt fields, off of Brazil, off of the tar sands out of Canada. We have to create 3 to 5 million barrels per day in order to just to stay even. And then on top of that, we would you know, create more to create the growth that we want um, in the world economy. So right now what we're seeing is that Everything we're doing, and it's beautiful, and it's technological, and it's creative, and and if you have a chance, go visit one of these drill rigs. It's incredible what they do. They can hit a dinner plate from up top, you know, all the way down there. It's it's amazing, and uh, we're just not seeing the flow rates coming out of this that we need right now. And again, I just revert back to... Look at the world price for oil. It tells us everything we need to know about this story. And there's a, well, which I think is another point, which is that all of the easy to get, light, sweet, crude has been found. The stuff that we're getting now is dirtier, more expensive, harder to get. And that's part of the upward price pressure you're talking about. Absolutely. Saudi Arabia always comes out and says, oh, we've got another three million barrels per day of spare production. And it, and it's true. They do have spare production. It's in these fields that they found in the fifties and sixties and they mothballed because it's nasty sour uh, oil, and they just didn't want to deal with it. Yes, they can go back and open those fields up, but it turns out the world doesn't want that stuff right now. So Saudi Arabia can pump all the heavy sour it wants, and the world is saying, we'd really like that light sweet, because that's what our refineries are tuned for. So we're also facing, within that peak oil story, it's a, it's a question of flow rates and also the quality of the grades of oil that we want. 
And Tom Van Dyke, you would say, even if we can get the stuff, if we burn it, we're in trouble. Yeah, I would say that we can't afford to burn all the hydrocarbons that we have. So we should start converting the economy immediately to something that's much more sustainable that we can leave to our descendants. You know, and we have to rely on innovation to to allow that to happen. I mean, we have, you know, we have in our, in, with an iPhone, we have more innovation than what, you know, went to the moon in 1969. You know, as far as computing power goes, I mean, they were doing that by by math. You're, the, you're a scientist, right? I mean, it was much harder. I mean, now, so we have to continue to rely, we have to rely on innovation to make this come about. So, so the the kind of things we need to back are situations where you say, okay, we're willing to back technology that has no carbon output, it has cradle to cradle design, so you actually have the idea of you know full cycles, so you have all the costs and all the externalities priced into the product, because you know we don't. It's not, it's not a free market when pollution's a subsidy, right? I mean, you have, you have a situation where coal is burned to produce electricity, and then, you know, the Natural Resource Defense Council just did a study that came out today that said, oh, this one utility, this 26 coal man plants that was burning last year, it killed 3,000 people. It cost 1 million man days in work days, one, a, a million days of work. He rippled across... The people that got sick, 20,000 asthmas, blah, blah, blah. You can get the report from NRDC. So there's actually this cost that comes from burning coal. But does coal pay for that at six cents a kilowatt hour? No. That's not really internalizing the price of coal. So is that a free market? No, that's a subsidized market. So to have free market, you need to have cost-price integration. And that's the one thing that I think sustainable investing, environment, social, and governance pushes for is the idea that, look, it, capitalism does two things extremely well. It exploits. It exploits natural resources and labor and human capital. Okay? Does it incredibly well. But it also is the most innovative system out there when it comes to entrepreneurialism and solving solutions. But you need to define the playing field of capitalism with regulations to create innovation. And right now, what's happening is the regulators are bought and paid for by various industries that want to monetize certain assets that they have capital investments in that they can't monetize. They're not going to be able to fully depreciate those assets because the depreciation of those assets means the depreciation of our descendants and the kind of environment that they're going to inherit. So we need we need to have that the regulators actually be free of that capital so they can regulate to allow innovation to take place because innovation will create jobs and make things more sustainable and more efficient. And then our system can actually do what it does best, which is innovate. Because if you don't innovate, you die. You can't protect these old, outdated technologies. They've tried that for years. But you have to allow innovation to take place. And what's happening is we're not allowing it to take place. It's gumming up the engine of the creative engine of capitalism. You mentioned descendants. Uh, Chris Martinson, you mentioned when we spoke earlier, uh, I guess it's a Saudi saying that uh, my grandfather uh, rode a camel. I drive a car. My son uh, rides in a plane. My grandson will ride in a camel. Mm-hmm. Are we headed for that kind of uh, uh, decrease in, uh, in real income and wealth, a, a shrinking of the American uh, standard of living? Is this a, yeah, the, the back to the future situation? It will be if we're not careful. And, and I'm worried that we're going to default. So there's, there's two concepts I like to tease apart. Um, prosperity, which is what I think we're really after. Everybody says, you know what, what I'm, what I'd like is I'd like my children to enjoy a prosperous future. I think that's embedded in that, in that saying you've got there. Um, and without care and concern, you, you might end up finding yourself right back where you started, um, and, and with decreased prosperity. But what we're chasing is growth. And for a long time, those two have come together, but they've been coincident.
It hasn't been a causal relationship. And so you can easily have growth that steals from your prosperity. I mean, we can think of these massive, sprawling slum cities that exist in some parts of the world. They are models of growth, but they don't have a lot of prosperity. And so what really prosperity is, is the natural capital is the source of all capital that there is. And we can put our human inventions and inventiveness on top of that. But once we understand that that natural capital is being depleted, it's, it's like a principal balance of a bank account, and we're going to draw that down. That's fine. You can do that. But while we're doing that, I think we should be building something with that capital. If we're just squandering it, what we run the risk of, I think, is, is living out that, that story you just came forward with, where we will find ourselves with declining living standards. We will be confused as to why it's happening. We see the world's central banks just dumping money into the world economies like crazy, trillions and trillions of yen, euro, dollars. And still the world isn't, isn't sparking back to life. And part of the explanation for that, I believe, is in the energy story, looking at where we are with energy costs. And until we understand that, that we have this incredible bequeathment of capital that was given to us in the form of hydrocarbons that we can use however we want, it's time to understand that we have to begin using those really wisely with an eye towards the future, with towards what we're leaving behind, rather than just saying, well, let's grow as fast as we can with this and then see where that gets us. Because I, I truly believe that story... Um, is, is, ends much, not, not the way anybody in this room wants it to end. Chris Martinson is the author of The Crash Course and an Investment uh, Advisor. We're also here with Tom Van Dyke, Senior Vice President, RBC Wealth Management. I'm Greg Dalton. Tom, your comments, your reactions to that? You agree? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the, the point is we need to, we need to innovate. I think we need to, we need to look at becoming more sustainable. Um, and as I was saying, I think it's zero carbon, cradle to cradle, uh, job creation domestically, um, you have to have the commodity being free or relatively ubiquitous like solar or wind where you can actually export an idea and then you don't have something like uranium getting pushed up in price, oil getting pushed up in price, but you have something that can be used and exported. Okay? And if you export, you know, so we could be exporting this technology that we're developing here in, in California and in other parts of the United States, but predominantly here. And then we could export a sustainable growth. From that perspective, an interesting thing. Do you think growth will be lower in the future? I think growth is going to be lower for a new a while. normal. Yeah, I think there will be a new normal. I think I think we need to come up with more creative ways. For example, a carbon tax, which Australia passed last year, twenty-five bucks a ton. Now, is twenty-five bucks a ton enough of a tax on carbon to get any innovation from the people that I've asked who run the European market? No. I mean, if you ask people, what, what's the dollar number? Do you hear fifty dollars often? Yeah. That's, that's the number, 50 bucks a ton. So what if you started a carbon tax at 25 bucks a ton, you increase it five bucks a ton for the next 25 years? What business doesn't like is inconsistency of regulation. They can deal with consistency. You say, here's what's going to be. You can model that. You can start, you know, working a business around that. You can start dealing with your supplies accordingly. You know, you can let various investment banks do the derivative products around the tax increase so they're not making the entire 50% themselves and setting the market prices makes it way too volatile for business to deal with. The way that California is approaching this uh, is with a cap-and-trade right. system. Uh, do you think that can be gamed? Yes. All day long? <laughs> yes. Uh, but we're still going to do it. Well, I th- I th- here's what I think. I think that, you know, where, where is the current California market trading right now? It doesn't exist. You haven't really started trading. Right. Cal- but, right. Yeah. But I mean, it's it, going to start next year. But, you know, when they were originally talking about that, they're talking about, you know, escape, escape valves at 14 bucks 
you know, a ton. And it's not going to get up to the price where you're going to get this innovation that you need. There's, if you ask an economist what is the most effective way to price carbon, there's not one of them that will not say that tax is the most efficient way to put a price on carbon. Right, but no But they say, oh, but it's not politically viable. No well, that doesn't mean no you way. shouldn't do it. I mean, half the things we're, you know, some of the things we're talking about now, it's like, well, it's not, they're not politically viable. Well, but they make economic sense. So what I'm hearing you say about California's cap and trade system is the worst case is the price won't get high enough to, to create innovation. Innovation. Right. But it will be gamed. Well, I don't, I'm not going to say that. And, you know, it, it, strike it, that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so there's a potential for Too it to late. be gamed. Yeah. There's a potential for it to be gamed. And that's what I worry about. Because where with it with it with a price and a tax, you can do a derivative around that tax and hedge your your portfolio of what you were looking to hedge without having it set the price. The, let the derivative set the price. So I think that there's a potential for a potential game. Hopefully that won't be gained, but I think there's a potential for it. I would rather have the price be set by a more economic way of doing it, which is a tax, and then have it be increased so the business can plan for that. And and adjust their flows accordingly to make themselves more sustainable. Chris Martinson, how should hydrocarbons be taxed? Should it be a tax or should it be cap and trade? Well, I think, you know, let's go back to the early 70s. So we have this geopolitical oil shock. And in our country, President Carter puts a cardigan on, says, you know, Houston, we have a problem, and gets voted out of office. We go to Morning America, we buy SUVs, and here we are. Um, I I skipped a couple steps. And... uh, in Europe, they said, oh, this is real, and, and they put a very high tax on, on their petrol, and that was to shape behaviors. And so if you go to Europe now, you find they have um, about half the energy per capita, a very high quality of life, as far as I can tell every time I go there. My cell phone works everywhere. I, I love that feature of it. Okay. And, uh, and what happened with that high, high petrol tax was it people bought smaller cars, they lived closer to where they worked, they made decisions around how that cost of, of that of that fuel was going to impact their lives and adjusted accordingly. So when we fast forward to this part of the story, there can, there, there's absolutely no question that people respond best to economic incentives, right? So to me, it would be the price of the fuel. The higher the price of the fuel, the more people will will shift towards using less of that in whatever way that means: buying more efficient vehicles, mm-hmm. uh, investing in technologies that can that can promote efficiency. It, it but will be cheap the cost. gas is an American birthright. It's an entitlement. <laughs> That's one cheap story. Gas. That's a good news. We act as though cheap gas is an entitlement. If, if gas goes up 25%, people are screaming, the politicians are running. Uh, it's, a different, it's a different story here. It is a different story. So in my view, this, this, the price of energy is going to go up no matter what. In 1998, we hit a, an all-time low in the portion of disposable income in this country that went towards food and fuel. And it clocked in a low at about 14%. A, a much more average long-term historical norm is north of 30%, and in many countries is 50% or higher. So I think that, that one way or another, we're going to face higher food and, food and fuel costs that are going to be impinging on people's disposable income, and that's going to shape all kinds of things, regardless of what we do. My message is, why not get out in front of that? Let's face a future shaped by design rather than disaster. So let's talk about resilient communities. That's a term that comes up these days with sort of buying local, eating locally, uh, you know, are there examples of communities that are looking at long global supply chains fueled by cheap fossil fuels and say, hey, there's a different model. We're going to have a, a more localized, resilient model. Is that happening? Absolutely. It's happening all over the place. It's, a, it's an incredible thing to watch. And the thing I love most about this is that many people sometimes are propelled into this by, by, by circumstances saying, oh, I'm a little concerned about where the world is heading, and here's a way I can regain some of this local control over uh, might be food. 
and what they find, what I found, in, and uh, is that when you start regaining this control, so you start farmers markets, and you know where your food is sourced, mm-hmm. you actually have a relationship with the person who's growing mm-hmm. your food. It happens to be a bright, shiny young couple, and and you feel good about supporting them. And and there's all these other benefits that accrue. And a uh, number of communities that I've had the pleasure of seeing this evolve with over the years, they look on it now and they say, "Why weren't we doing this anyway? This this just it feels good. It makes mm-hmm. sense. It's the way it's, our grandparents It's did economic it. sense. I have higher quality food. That, why weren't we doing this? So these crises, if you waste them, uh, what you don't do is look at the opportunities to really improve things. And that's part of the story I really like. There's a lot of improvement happening right now, and it was necessary and I think overdue. And it pushes, lo- it pushes localization, too, with the idea of a carbon tax. Because all of a sudden you don't ship the heavy stuff over from China because all of a sudden it's going to cost more money. So what do you do? You chip the lightweight stuff, the silicone chips, which are dropping and becoming more and more efficient. Because that's the other thing. Moore's Law. So if we're looking to finance something, you know, they should have a Moore's Law of efficiency. They ship it over, and then we assemble them the way the company right now is doing that in Richmond with solar. You know, where they're assembling them in a plant over here in Richmond, and they're taking it over from Manila. So you can then have jobs locally, and you have, you know, the tax could actually help with that. The localization, more organic, employs more people. You know, to be more more localized to your grassroots effect is definitely, you know, a more sustainable way to do. In San Francisco, where we have a moderate Mediterranean climate and we're on the coast, Mm -hmm. can you do this in Ohio? Can you do this in the heartland where they're not as close to... Uh, food sources are not the same year-round. That'll change soon. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to start growing uh, <laughs> specialty crops and, and then, well, rather yeah. than wheat. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you listen to Vice President Al Gore, if you've seen his recent speech, I mean, there's a whole modeling of what happens to, you know, this whole temperate zone that we're in and where it ends up moving. And oh, that's what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so the idea, if we continue along the path that we're doing, which I think Chris should say we're some of that's already going to happen, that there might be some more moderate weather in Ohio that they can plan around. So let's talk about climate impacts. There's going to be less water. We've talked about rising food costs. I mean, how is climate change, the disrupted climate, going to impact uh, financial markets and impact the things we're talking about? Well, the food story is really interesting. We look at it globally. Um, Supply and demand has always been really tightly balanced, and there was a number of period of years recently where we were actually drawing down on world grain stocks. And then uh, last year was actually a pretty bad year. The Ukraine caught on fire. Uh, Australia flooded in this, you know, once in a century or maybe longer kind of a flood situation. And, and that really unbalanced uh, supplies. So the food story is, is interesting because food costs are one of the most tightly correlated um, cost structures you can see with oil. So if you put up the price of oil and then you say, well, I'm going to overlay this with the price of world price of food chart, they're almost identical. And the reason for that is there's an enormous oil subsidy baked into the price of food. It's, it's you know, we've heard this, the old saw, there's 10 calories of oil baked in every calorie that makes it to your plate. That's more or less uh, uh, roughly accurate. So the more that, that oil prices go up, the more food prices are going to go up. And with that, of course, you know, maybe we'll see more planting. But right now the world pretty much has every arable acre under production. So we're looking at that. And meanwhile, the U.N. says, oh, yeah, and by 2050, we're, we're, we're hoping to double food production in the world. We're going to cut down the Amazon's part of it. Right? So that's a really tall order. And, and there's water issues baked into that. There's fertilizer issues. There's fuel issues. There's a lot of very, very big, big issues in this. And so that, too, says, wow, here's something that we really should step back, take a look at, ask the question, are we going to do this in the most cost-effective way or the most resilient way? Cost-effective is, is very good, but it tends not to be resilient. 
Um, you know, and that's we have a very cost-effective farming system right now. It's not terribly resilient. So what is an individual investor to do in a situation like this? Invest in gold, uh, invest in food stocks, energy stocks? Individ- this is easy for the individual. Um, first thing you do is you invest in yourself. Right? I, I advise people to get out of debt at this point in time if you can, to every extent. If you have that luxury, get out of as much debt as you can. Second thing, invest in yourself. So right now, you can the average home in the Northeast, if they invest in something called air sealing, where you're just trying to plug the holes so you're, you know, uh, heat and cool isn't heading into the atmosphere. That has an ROI of about a return on investment of 18%. So let's go over to Wall Street for a second. Tell me where you can get a guaranteed 18% return on Wall Street, right? That's, energy efficiency is a great way to go. So, so that's an investment people can make. Uh, insulating has a very high ROI, 10, 12, 15%. My solar thermal panels have uh, a return on investment of at least 11%. But if the life, if it lasts for 25 years, who knows? It might be a 100% return. Uh, it's incredible what what uh, is available there. Uh, the third thing I advise people to do after you've sort of invested in your in your local infrastructure with great returns, economically provable good returns, uh, giving you greater resilience too because you're less less exposed to rising energy costs. Um, I advise people to get into some gold at this point in time be, simply because of what the central banks are doing across the world. We've seen this experiment before. Now, do you mean in, gold mining stocks or no. actually take physical possession? you got physical. a safe in your backyard? Yes, and, and it's, uh, <laughs> it's right near this patch of I was hoping to turn into garden space, and it's buried. So, uh, so you, can't, you can't find it. But the idea is there's a difference between owning the tangible asset and the companies that extract it. Yes, because the companies extracted are exposed to all kinds of other risks that are that are uh, too numerous to go into. There's there's geo, you know, we just saw a bunch of right. gold mines get nationalized. They're exposed to energy costs. There's all kinds of other exposures there. That's a different story. I mean, tangible physical gold that people can hold, and that's simply because of what's happening fiscally and monetarily in the world. There's a, a very compelling story around that. Uh, Tom Van Dyke, I know you can't talk about specific companies, but mm-hmm. to talk about sectors, what individuals can do to sort of be more resilient in some of these shocks we're talking about. Well, I think getting a proper asset allocation for what you know risk and return you're looking to take is, is, is the key from the standpoint of being able to make that happen. And then I think the idea of overlaying environment, social, and governance factors on the management teams that you're looking to employ. Because, you know, investment really is the economic expression of your thinking from that perspective. So you want you want to have companies that have strong, you know, do they treat their employees as assets or costs? Because when you think about a company that treats their employees as an asset, it's going to be a company that actually is going to end up, what, making more money. Because if you treat your employees as costs, you're going to be, they're going to, Take days off, like nice days like today, and do an occupy demonstration. They're gonna, you know, they're gonna, they're not gonna be. You're gonna have inconsistent implementation of your business plan because you're gonna have what? Job turnover. Number one cost of business. One of the main costs of business is job turnover. So if you treat them as assets, you can have more productivity, fewer sick days. Same thing with sustainability. The idea that you're using natural resources, which are becoming scarcer and they're gonna continue to become scarcer, more efficiently, using them more wisely. You're recycling them, so you may not even be able to need to use. Uh, New natural resources. I mean, for example, we throw away, we are a very inefficient economy. We throw away 25,000 aircraft's worth of aluminum in our aluminum cans every day and every year into the, into the dumps. We don't use it. 25,000 airlines worth of aluminum in cans. We use, for the electrons we produce in our electro plants, what do we actually end up using? What percentage? It's like 40 or 50 percent. So we produce these electrons. But we send them and they, we don't utilize them. So we're very inefficient. 
So from the standpoint of looking at your portfolios, management teams, they can actually take advantage of that inefficiency and innovate and use productivity and, and look at that. Those management teams are going to outperform management teams that don't have those practices. The other thing we look at is diversified boards. The idea that if a board is more diverse, you actually end up, in fact, Calvert, this one investment group did a study the other day that said if you put one woman on a, on a board, you'll actually increase your return, you know, by 15%. Okay? So, and they did a study. You can, you can, you can, you can check it out. There's, so the idea, and why does that work? Well, it works because what you're doing is you're identifying higher quality management teams, and when you invest and not gamble in high frequency trading, you actually need to buy management teams that have these kind of higher characteristics. They're going to beat their competitors. You could always cheat the system and exploit your costs and externalize your costs off the balance sheet for a short period of time. And then what happens is you'll get regulated or something will happen. You'll get fined. You'll get a strike. What we find, actually, is companies that generally have weaker practices in the environment, social and governance factors probably also have weaker balance sheets. So one of the reasons why they're cheating and externalizing the cost is they can't afford to do it the right way because they don't have the capital on the balance sheets to make them as strong as their competitors. Tom Van Dyke is Senior Vice President at RBC Wealth Management. Our other guest today at Climate One is Chris Martinson, author of The Crash Course. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to put an audience mic here and invite your participation. Uh, we ask you if you're on this side to please go out that door and around rather than crossing in front of this camera. So you can go out that door. The line starts with Jane Ann, our producer, right there. And then uh, we encourage you to join the conversation with one uh, brief, one-part uh, question or comment. And I'll be pretty crisp about keeping it to that one, one part. And uh, thanks for we'll get some moving on that. And while that's happening, uh, I want to ask Tom Van Dyke whether carbon risk is fully captured and disclosed in today's uh, markets, equity markets in particular, and debt markets for that matter. No, I, no, I think that, I think that's one of the things that people. You know, there's certain nonprofit groups that are out there where, like, the carbon disclosure project is out there trying to gather information so that it urges companies to report on you know, what their carbon risk is. In fact, part of Green Wave that the California Public Employee Retirement System did was one of the legs was it one leg was environmentally screened actively managed portfolios. The other one was a billion dollars in clean technology private equity. The third one was looking at the idea of global reporting initiative for the S P five hundred so they understood where their carbon risk was in their portfolios. CalPERS and CalSTRS is actually looking at this as a critical component to evaluating the risk in their portfolio. That's the other thing that environment, social, and governance factors identify is risk and risky behaviors. And so ultimately, the capital markets, like I said, they'll go down the alleyway of exploitation as easy as they'll go down the alleyway of innovation and sustainability. What you want to do is that they're like a dog chasing a bone. If they can make more money going down the way of sustainability, they'll go down that alleyway. Okay, so that's what we need to have happen, and regulations can make that happen by internalizing those costs that are now being externalized. Let's have our first audience question. Yes, sir. Uh, Chris, uh, uh, I think it was around March 14th, there was a spike in interest rates, um, treasuries, um, actually all, all bond categories, um, and I thought, hmm, is this the beginning? Uh, and it turned out the, that that reversed um, and uh, and rates went back down again. Uh, how do you see uh, things falling apart in, in, in the bond markets? Well, so right now we have to understand that the bond markets are, are some of the most heavily influenced markets in the world. We know that the European Central Bank is stepping into uh, Spanish bond auctions. Uh, we know that the 
Federal Reserve has been running something called Operation Twist, where they're specifically, uh, you know, taking on long-dated uh, treasuries. The Federal Reserve bought a little over 60% of all new issuances of federal debt uh, last year. And so, so that's a very heavily influenced market. So when you buy bonds, when somebody like the Federal Reserve prints money out of thin air or the electronic equivalent and then buys bonds, what they're doing is they're raising the price of those bonds, which drives the yield down because prices and yields of bonds are on a seesaw. When one goes up, the other goes down. So right now, you know, once upon a time, the bond market used to be heavily feared by politicians because because it would it, it the bond market has more power than any other market out there uh, to uh, set behaviors. And so, right now, the the signaling mechanism from the bond market has been completely decoupled from the bond market because we have the Federal Reserve printing money out of thin air and then buying those bonds. So right now, I would suggest that the information we're getting from bonds is not accurate. It's not good. It, we're going to have to read, you know, it's really noisy data. We're going to have to squint at it a little bit, knowing that prices for bonds are higher, yields are lower than, I'm going to put air quotes up right here with my fingers, than they should be at this point in time. Thank you for that question. Yes, sir, let's have our next question. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. Chris, I read your book, Crash Course. Great work. Uh, Tom, I love your thoughts on investing. Uh, my question is, um, I've had a 401k plan that rolled over a couple times, currently in amount control. For the last six to eight years, it's been largely flat. What asset classes as an individual investor should I be investing in? Gold has come up, you know, I've done some gold assets. Is there any point in it? And how can I, Tom, to you, how can I, as the individual, figure out which management teams are actually sustainably operating and, and how can I approach this as an individual? Thank you. Tom Van Dyke. Yeah. Uh, there's something called the, well, for your, you know, you have to decide what's appropriate for your risk and return levels uh, on your own from an allocation perspective or with a professional. But there's something called the Social Investment Forum. It's out of Washington, D.C. that you can look at. And there's some members that are part of that, and they have a, a list for money managers specifically that use environment, social, and governance factors. Uh, and that would be probably the best place to go online to check that out. And as far as flat returns, the decade was kind of flat for the S&P like it was in the 70s. And if the, right. your slow growth hypothesis is true, there's going to be more of that in the future, right? P- potentially. I mean, it, it, potentially. I mean, you, you know, if you look back in time, you know, Chris We're, says the old days of getting 10%. The old days are over. But it, it has been the worst, one of the worst times from the, from the last decade perspective for return inequities, you know, over the last, say, since the Depression. You know, that was the time, the, lat, the 30s was probably the worst period next to this one, where you have more time frames where the, the equity market is, was either slightly down or flat on a 10-year rolling back basis. So if you believe in regression to the mean, then you say, well, maybe the next 10 years might not be so bad. Now, do you need excessive growth to make that happen? You know, we'll see. I think innovation and sustainability will help. Well, you know, one model for this is Japan, which didn't just have a lost decade. It had a couple of them. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the stock market hit a peak, I think, in 89, and mm. it's nowhere close to that peak at this point in time. And so what they did was they got themselves extremely over-leveraged. They didn't allow the bad banks to go under. They didn't allow the bad debts to get washed away. They just tried to cover it up and ride it out. And uh, Japan had a number of things in its favor, being net export positive, high-saving nation, all of these things that the United States doesn't have in its asset uh, toolkit right now. So there's a chance here that we could be facing a similar situation because we had extraordinary levels of leverage and we haven't allowed those to deleverage. We're not we're not taking this crisis to deleverage. 
we're just sort of cooking them along and, and floating this whole piece. And so that's one of the elements that I put into my zero growth or, or worse, maybe even negative growth um, mm-hmm. hypothesis is to say, here are the parallels to Japan. There's something to learn here. Plus, on top of this, we have a couple other things we have to, to factor in. Let's have our next question for Chris Martinson and Tom Van Dyke. Hi, uh, Dr. Martinson. Um, my big issue has been mainly with infrastructure spending and going forward what we do. Um, you talked about electric cars, but what about electric rail? Um, California is investing in high-speed rail. What do you think of the prospects for a national program of electric rail lines, some high-speed but some just electrified? Uh, I don't, well, politically, I don't think the prospects are very good right now. If we look at um, the total amount of federal spending that's actually going towards anything that I would call electric transport, it's less than 0.1% of the total overall budget um, proposed for this next year. It's a tiny, tiny amount. It's not credible. So, the the you know California is talking about a high-speed rail link. It's it's relatively short. You know, it's just a tiny one. It's going between a couple of couple two locations. Uh, what we're, what you're talking about is we need an, an infrastructure of this, meaning we need these things to be going pretty much everywhere, more or less like Europe does. Uh, I would be actually be more in favor. I, I know the high-speed trains, they're, they're sexier and, and, and they get more attention. But honestly, I think you were right in talking about just normal, conventional, low-speed. Um, you know, those are easier to build, cheaper to maintain, all kinds of things. They're, they're just a lot easier to, to go along with. So we absolutely need... Uh, to think about the most cost-effective ways to begin moving things from point A to point B. And water happens to be the most cost-effective, bar none, by a lot. So let's get the barge systems going again. Let's move things as much as we can by, by ship. Second is rail, and uh, if we could reinvigorate that. And I hear a lot of people say, well, you know, rail is really hamstrung. There, there's, how are we going to build all these rail lines everywhere? A lot of the old lines have been decommissioned, and there's eminent domain thing, and nimbyism, and... And, and I was at a conference where this guy, uh, very waggishly on his own, he said, yeah, if only we had large, flat, you know, paved, um, you know, paths that were going for all the places we wanted to go. <laughs> if only there were, you know. And so the question became, well, what if you took one lane of a highway and said, well, that's now a, that's a rail bed? Uh, what would happen in that case? I think there's, you know, really non-standard quo solutions. We need that kind of thinking now, and we need to get serious about it. They tried that in Marin, and boy, it was a decades-long fight to get a, that up in Marin. Let's have our next question, please. Hi, Chris. Um, I used to work with Matt Simmons, so I'm very familiar with the uh, peak oil argument. And one of the things we'd always hear when we were discussing peak oil is when you look at oil priced in gold, it's actually pretty low. What are your thoughts on that? A lot of people think that the price of oil is strictly a, a monetary inflation phenomenon. And secondly, will you touch upon the uh, world dollar oil standard, and what's your thoughts about that going forward? Right. So I I do um, have an exit strategy for. I got into gold um, uh, about a decade ago, and my exit strategy is when uh, the things that I care most about, pricing in gold, start going the other direction. So right now, um, everything's going in my direction. So number of ounces that it takes to buy a house. Uh, that's been declining. So I, I love that chart. Um, the number of barrels of oil that you can um, buy with a single ounce of gold, that's been going up. That's going in my direction. Uh, the food costs priced in gold. So what I've done in my mind is I've decoupled the dollar price of gold. Everybody quotes that. You know, is it 1600 1700 Those are meaningless to me. What I care about is what's the cost of a college education in gold? What's the cost of oil, uh, you know, housing? All the basic things. And and there we've just got, you know, if you look at the charts in that direction, you say, obviously this makes sense. It's, it's, the charts are still good here. 
Um, the petrodollar was an extraordinary stroke of genius because right around the time that the world went on a floating exchange rate standard, started August 15, 1971, slammed the gold window, there was no longer gold convertibility for dollars, broke the Bretton Woods Agreement. Right around that same time, the world went on a petrodollar standard, meaning that any country that wanted to buy oil had to do it in dollars. So even as recently as last year, if China wanted to buy oil from Venezuela, they had to cough up dollars and conduct that transaction. Now, Venezuela could turn their dollars into anything they want, but the point is that if you enforce a system where two countries need dollars in order to, to conduct trade in oil, they need dollars. So actually, the United States has been an extraordinary export nation uh, through the whole period of time we were, we were bemoaning our manufacturing loss. We were exporting dollars like crazy, and it was a great, it was a great gig. Um, the risk you've surfaced is that if that ends, and there's already signs that that is ending with the BRIC countries starting to conduct bilateral, non-dollar uh, denominated trade, specifically around oil, too, and energy, that that really um, ultimately exposes a, a very large weakness for the dollar. It's a source of concern because there'll be a lot less demand for dollars internationally. When there's a lot less demand for those, uh, obviously the dollar may fall in value uh, at that point in time from a supply-demand standpoint. So that, that model, which got put in by Kissinger, really was the architect of that. It was, it was a stroke of genius. That's, that's coming to an end at, at this point, and um, that's worth looking at. Let's have our next audience question. Yes, sir. Welcome. Uh, hi. Um, so my question has to do um, with the solar panel discussion that we had earlier on in the talk. Um, so I think Tom mentioned that um, Germany is the largest installer of solar panels, and they could be um, exporting that to Greece and installing it and in, have a more... Um, you know, have an economic engine going there. Um, but you also mentioned that China is the largest producer of the solar panels, or at least it came up in the discussion. What stops a um, country from China um, going around installing solar, solar panels all over its country rather than exporting all the solar panels that it manufactures? And they, they're building um, coal power plants at an unprecedented rate, and they're burning more coal in the U.S. right now. Why wouldn't they why wouldn't they, instead of exporting their solar panels, install it in their own country and turn it into a solar-based um, energy system rather than a coal-based energy system? Yeah, I, think that, I think that's a great question. I mean, because of the manufacturing of the, about 20 or $30 billion they put into the solar industry, the price of solar has dropped from basically 350 a watt to a dollar a watt since 08 to now. So you're getting all sorts of efficiencies happening in solar. You're seeing the price drop, battery storage, everything seems to be dropping, which makes it way more competitive from, you know, a fossil fuel generation perspective. So that's the good thing about them doing it. Yes, they should do some more internally. There was actually a great McKenzie report uh, on solar that just came out this month. It's called The Darkest Before the Dawn, or and it, it talks about how there is going to be these exponential increases in solar usage because of the fact that the, the price is dropping and they're becoming more efficient. So you should look at that. I think, you know, China should do that. China's looking at hoarding all sorts of different resources, I think, as they're trying to, to deal with their population. So hopefully they turn more towards solar than towards certainly burning coal, because if they turn towards burning coal, you know, unlike in this country where it seems like we've actually stopped the 150 coal-fired power plants that were on the in the blueprints, you know, a few years ago, it looks like we've probably stopped the ball from happening, which is great. China needs to do the same thing. Tying these two points together, we've had people here uh, recently who said what China's doing is converting U.S. dollars into clean technology at, at a very fast rate, perhaps mm -hmm. uh, for some of the rings Chris and, and Tom talked about. Let's have our next audience question. Yes, hi. Hi. Um, I've been an avid reader of uh, chrismartinson.com for about two years, and I'm very honored to be here. <laughs> um, I've got a question regarding student loans. 
I have trepidation um, about going into grad school because I don't want to be carrying in carrying a debt. And many of my friends have student loans, and it would take about four to five years to pay off. Would you suggest, rather than paying it off and start buying tangible, you know, tangible assets four to five years from now? when we're free of debt, or would you suggest going into credit card and using a credit card to buy tangible assets? And I'm balancing, it's a timing issue, I feel. Um, My secret fear is that, it's not secret, um, five years from now, for example, when I'm completely debt-free, I'm able to buy gold. gold. The price of gold would be so high that we won't be able to attain it, or we should capitalize on what's available, the price that's available now okay. rather than so Chris, waiting five years. You, thank you. Using credit cards to buy assets or to, to buy... Yeah. Hold on. Let's rewind to the beginning of that question because, because um, getting a degree can be a form of investing in yourself. One of the very active conversations at my website is around what sort of skills would people uh, want. And, and so if you're going into... Um, there are a lot of extraordinary opportunities coming and there are other areas which I think are going to be slightly less less obvious and, and maybe declining over time. So student loans right now are, are one of the hardest questions to answer because it is, in this country, for whatever reason, it is the only non-dischargeable debt that we have right now. It's not dischargeable through any process of bankruptcy, um, through any of the active code right now. So when you get into student debt, it's a very serious sort of a – that's a marriage of a sort. And – uh, going into that can make a lot of sense. And so the first question to, to resolve is, you know, does this make economic sense? There are a lot of studies that came out recently that said the return on investment of certain degrees is demonstrably negative and has been for a while. For other ones, it's very positive. So I would start there with some of those studies. Make sure, you, you know, this is a, a, a marriage you want to get into. Um, to go into, to take credit card debt um, to speculate in commodities? No. No. Not not when you're struggling with the student debt question. So let's just put a put a... A bullet in that one for now, um, if we can. Yeah. And, and President Obama just announced today that he's not for the increase in the student loan percentages, and you go to three and change to seven and change. And Romney quickly backed that. So it seems to me an issue that both Republicans and Democrats can agree that if you're going to borrow, you should do it cheaply at a lower interest rate. Let's have our next question for Chris Martinson and Tom Van Dyke. Hi. Um, so uh, there's been a lot of discussion about kind of the political economic incompatibilities with implementing any said changes and. You've mentioned, like, grassroots movements, which historically work usually only when it is so bad that everybody feels it. And then you've said that we respond well to economic incentives. However, we're not economically sensible, meaning I could buy a thermos and always make my own tea, but yet I end up buying both the thermos and make my own tea, but simultaneously I still do the convenient thing. I still do the economically non-intelligent thing. Um, and so my question is, we live in a very Smithian kind of um, logos here where we believe that growth is unlimited and that our ideals are strongly set and that we deserve what we attain and we shouldn't have to worry about consequence. I just saw a debate with Neil deGrasse Tyson and a conservative, and no amount of evidence was going to convince that conservative that climate change was real. In fact, he actually said over the past five years, it's actually demonstrated to him that climate change isn't real. So... How are you going to make this, you know, obvious, obvious incompatibility, how is that going to go away until it's too late or until it's reached that point where everybody feels it? Thank you. So how do we, how do we actually get grassroots uh, change in a rational direction when we know people are predictably irrational? 
um, which is a, a branch of, that's a that's a title of a book from uh, behavioral economics, and it's true. Uh, we are predictably irrational, and and uh, marketers know this and exploit it, and politicians know this and exploit it, and it, and it's part of our our human landscape, and um, that's just uh, I think an okay thing. I think that that the the success I've had in helping to push the narrative is really by stripping out my own emotions as much as possible, taking my own beliefs entirely out of the story as much as possible, because the facts alone can be very compelling, but we're not having a discussion about facts. We're really having a discussion about beliefs at the, at the heart of it. And um, it's really important, I think, to understand this if we want to effectively start communicating uh, this new story, this new narrative, because we can't come up with a narrative that says this is about loss. This is about a decline. This is about, you know, wearing hair shirts and eating our spinach. That, that story doesn't play, never has. Instead, we have to, you know, the story that started to surface a little bit earlier about these communities who are getting involved in this and going, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, this, this is fun. It makes sense. I like it. It feels good. It's economically uh, okay. We need to start illustrating that story, and that's why in my own life, you know, I have every single thing that I've ever advised anybody to do, I've lived and done. It's important for me because I think I have to be the change I wish to see. It's essential. And so I'm not waiting, and neither are millions of other people waiting to see this above the fold in the New York Times, waiting for the TV with the president to read it off a teleprompter and say, this is, this is what we're doing now, saying, no, this makes sense for me right now today because it's our choices today that matter. And I truly believe that in 10 or 15 years, you know, this is a really exciting period of time to be alive. Uh, history is going to look back at this moment and say, what, what were you doing? Mm-hmm. And I'm really happy to be saying, well, I, I was doing as much as I thought I could, or I, I did what made sense. And and this is something that truly I think we have to model it with, and without any expectation even that people are going to follow us. You just have mm-hmm. to do what you think is right and do it to the best of your ability and trust that that's enough. Right. It's like if the people lead, the leaders will follow. Small group organizing is a great way to get involved in these communities. Go get involved in something that's doing something sustainable. Take over your local PUC or something, you know, to your local school district. Something to to help push the sustainability and model what you want to do. It's all about stewardship. The the CEO of, of RBC Wealth Management wrote a book, John Taft, about stewardship. And his answer is to the financial crisis. It's we have to be better stewards for what we're doing and what we're we're looking out after. And that's ultimately, I think, what we all have to take accountability for. Tom Van Dyke is Senior Vice President at RBC Wealth Management. Our guest also at Climate One today is Chris Martinson, author of The Crash Course. I'm Greg Dalton. A full podcast of this program and other Climate One programs is available for free in the iTunes store. We have a couple of minutes left. Let's try to get through the remaining questions. Yes, sir. Welcome. Hi, my name is Christian. I have a quick comment and, and a question. So the, the comments related to innovation and from the sound of it, maybe creating more jobs for the future generation as, as they're coming along. Um, there was no mention as to how that uh, may be stopped from, you know, those just same jobs created from innovation being outsourced because just as quickly as they're being created, they're being outsourced. And uh, that's thanks to NAFTA. And, you know, uh, I, I, I think I heard that... Uh, Jim Rogers and a couple of other people of the mind that whether it's a good or a service, it should probably be taxed uh, currently where the items made, whether it be China or Brazil, because that would help bring back some of the jobs if you in, have have those taxes high enough where the good is actually created. Um, but so we have to we have to wrap up quickly, so let's leave it there. Quick, can... quick, quick question. This is very important. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, is for, for for Chris, and that's relating to the derivatives market. Dylan Radigan commented that it's about seven hundred. Fifty trillion dollars currently, 
And there's some estimates through shadowstats.com, John Williams, that it's probably about $1.4 quadrillion. What impact do you think that's going to have on the world financial markets if, if that falls apart? Thank you. Derivatives. Do we have time for this? Real quickly, yeah. Um, so uh, in, what was it, about five or six years ago, Warren Buffett bought a company. It was a reinsurance company. And he just wanted the reinsurance business, but it had these derivatives wrapped into it. Uh, the company had 14,000 derivatives in, in its portfolio, and he thought, well, I'll just sell these off. It took him six years. I don't think he's completely done with it yet. And he said, nobody understands these things. So when you mention a number like, is it 750 trillion or a quadrillion or more, it, we don't understand, nobody in this world today understands how these derivatives markets are all fully interlinked because they're traded over the counter. They're very complex. Each one is an extraordinary document. They're traded amongst and across parties. And, and you know, I think that we saw the answer to this where, where the European markets looked at the opportunity to just have about 78 billion of, of credit default swaps on Greek debt. Were they going to let that trigger or not? And for the longest time, they fought having that triggered. And this is just $78 billion. They were afraid to see what would happen. After months of wrangling and walking that down and understanding the counterparties, they let it happen. Um, and, and nothing, you know, the, the sun rose the next day. It was fine. But uh, the derivatives market is a big, giant, scary unknown because, frankly, I don't know of anybody who really understands that entire market because I have trouble finding anybody who fully understands a single contract let alone the entire uh, hairball of them. So it's, it's, it's an unknown, and that creates fear and uncertainty. And we have to end it on that uh, uncertain note. Uh, our thanks to uh, Chris Martinson, author of The Crash Course, and Tom Van Dyke, Senior Vice President at RBC Wealth Management. Thank you for coming, and thank you for listening to Climate One today. Come up and say... Um,